bum bum bottom 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 bum
it's reasonably priced, maybe too reasonably. They got to <laughs> realize their talent. But while their self-esteem is low, get in there now and get a commission. Because honestly, this portrait of Brad and I as long shot and random damsel I'm Longshot, obviously. It's made our lives. It really has. It really has. Treasured, treasured. Is that that it with the housekeeping? I think so. I think so. House kept. Now on with the show. Now, Brad, you know I would love to take partial credit for landing this whale on our little dinghy of a podcast, but I can't. How the heck did Stephen Bissett find his way onto CBCC? Well, I got to throw some love back at the YouTube channel Cartoonist Kayfabe hosted by Jim Rugg and Ed Piskor. Brad calls them his boys. Yeah, we've never met. Well, no, that's not true. We met Jim Rugg at the Four Color Fantasies for a book signing once. Uh, but, I, you know, you, when you watch guys every day, they, they become your best buds, even though they're not really. But they had Stephen Bissett on their channel a couple weeks ago. They did a shoot interview. An epic shoot interview, like three plus hours. And at the very end of that conversation, Stephen Bissett mentioned that he had written a book on David Cronenberg's 1979 cult classic, The Brood. And that's when your gears started turning because you happened to write for a cinema website. Yeah, Film School Rejects. And I thought, this is my in. I'm going to reach out to to Steve. Uh, And I did through his Twitter account. His DMs are open, guys. Uh, And and I said, hey, um, I write for Film School Rejects. I'd love to talk to you about The Brood and write that up for the site. And he said, that sounds like a great idea. And then I got greedy and I said, well, you know, could we run this conversation on our channel? The original idea was just to talk to him about The Brood and then drop that podcast on the In the Mouth of Darkness podcast, Film School Rejects and Comic Book Couples Counseling. But Steve's such a good guy. He's like, how about we have one conversation about The Brood, which guys is now available for you to listen to right now over at the In the Mouth of Darkness podcast and at filmschoolrejects.com. And then after that, let's come back and you and your wife can talk to me about the comic book stuff. And we went, oh, yes, please. Yeah, I can't believe he immediately started programming for a podcast. He's such a professional. such a professional. And, you know, what Lisa and I wanted to do is we wanted to have a conversation with him about those Saga of the Swamp Thing issues that we covered here many months back. Uh, But we wanted to, like, we didn't want to just dig into, hey, Swamp Thing is great. How did this come to be? Because... He's talked about this for decades, right? Like he's he, he's a, 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 an amazing essayist. He's an amazing writer. He's been writing afterwards and 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 theses all about Swamp Thing for decades. And you should read them. You should pick up Absolute Swamp Thing. You should read his afterward because it is. I mean, it is just so detailed and in-depth and thoughtful. And you should listen to the cartoonist Kayfabe interview where he goes over his entire career with those guys. We didn't necessarily want to cover the same stuff. We wanted to talk about Abby and Swampy, and that's our focus. When we were doing our episodes on Swampy and Abby, we compare different writers on the story. And on that run of Saga of the Swamp Thing, Without doing any blatant retconning, I guess there's one major thing that is kind of a retcon, but it was, I think, integrated flawlessly into the storyline where they just weren't straight up ignoring or changing history. They transformed those characters from being something that was one-dimensional and 
a little repetitive to something that spoke to me specifically, especially with the character of Abby. Yeah. Uh, You know, for those, for some reason, unaware of Saga of the Swamp Thing, I mean, it's an older book. Um, I would not be surprised if every contemporary reader had not gotten their way to Saga of the Swamp Thing. Uh, You know, you're familiar with Alan Moore, Watchmen, From Hell, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, The Killing Joke. I love all that stuff. So do I. Yeah, but to be honest, like Saga of the Swamp Thing's my favorite thing of Alan's work, right? And that was something for me that developed on these episodes. Yeah, yeah, and and I would say the same thing for me. Now, the important thing about Saga of the Swamp Thing was that in May of 1982, DC Comics needed to reboot the title character uh, to coincide with the Wes Craven movie adaptation. That flick is, um... Enjoyable? Maybe. But not really good. Not at all. Uh, Saga of the Swamp Thing as a comic book began with writer Martin Pascoe and penciler Tom Yates, but toward the end of Pascoe's arc, he was replaced by Stephen Bissett on pencils and John Tuttlebin on inks. But Bissett and Tuttlebin were buddies with Yates during their early days at the Joe Kubert School, and they had already been ghosting on a lot of their pages before uh, they officially took over. Then Martin Pascoe left after issue number 19, and Alan Moore came on as the series writer. Saga the Swamp Thing was struggling in sales, and as a result, Moore, Bissett, and Tuttlebin had free reign to pretty much do anything and everything that they wanted to do on the title. And they took full advantage. And I'm so glad they did. Yeah, absolutely. What's hilarious, though, is that the series editor and Swamp Thing co-creator initially rejected John Tuttlebin's radical new design for Swampy. That's Len Wein. Uh, where the artist, Tuttlebin, he embraced Swampy's plant-like structure. Uh, and Alan Moore, he loved that idea. And once he wrapped up with the Pasco storyline on issue 20, he got to work revealing that Swampy is more plant than man. And in fact, Alec Holland did die in his accident, and the muck monster who crawled out of the swamp was an entirely different being. Even today, reading those issues, I mean, it, it's, it feels radical. It, it, it like conceptually feels radical and on point with the character. And with our love guru for this particular set of episodes- Oh, yeah was Common and his book, Let Love Have the Last Word. And Common was always talking about rejuvenating himself, living in the present. And for me, Swamp Thing going like, my past is actually just a narrative. Mm -hmm. It's just a construct. And who I am in the present is my actual self. And I embrace that idea that going... The, uh, the most important person that I am is the person I am in this moment. And all I can do is tr- just try to embrace the present. And Swamp Thing has become my symbol for that. Yeah. Uh, mindfulness. Yeah, mindfulness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but because of what came after with Alan Moore, you know, Watchmen from Hell, The Killing Joke, all those things that we just mentioned, Moore tends to get most of the credit for Saga of the Swamp Thing. But as you'll hear in this conversation with Bissett, the comic book was a true collaboration where ideas were shared amongst all the creators and the final product equally belongs to all of them. I And that's beautiful. And I mean, yeah. And it's, it's evident when you look at the book itself. And Bissett would say that his work with Moore and Totalbin and Rick Veach and the rest is like a, a jazz group. You'll hear us talk about this idea of art 
as modal jazz in this interview. But what it highlights and means to me is that when it comes to his time on Saga of the Swamp Thing, at this point in his history, he's pretty selfless about it. Like, he's had his time to shine and do his jazz solo, but when he passes off the torch to the next creator or the next writer, he's done his thing, his thing is over, and he's ready for those changing bass chords to come back around. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so uh, obviously we're pretty darn excited about this chat. I'm talking like a, a, a speed demon. I don't know why <laughs> I'm talking so fast because, you know, I'm crazy excited to bring this episode to you guys. Um, and, and you know what? You'll, you're going to hear at the start of this conversation and if you're a, a beset aficionado, some of these stories you might recognize, but don't worry, we find ways of getting some seriously fascinating and revelatory information out of the master. Our secret weapon is Lisa Gullickson. Oh, please. Oh, well, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> Let's just get into this interview. Yeah. We it's sh <laughs> we shouldn't just tell the story of the interview you just you're about is, to listen to. It's a long conversation. There's so much good stuff here. Uh enjoy. We'll meet you back on the other side and do our regular outro. Thanks for tuning in for this episode. It's really special. Share with your friends. <laughs> And we are joined by Stephen Bassett. Steve, thank you so much. We are obviously massive fans. We've already been rambling about how much we love your work on our intro. Um, we came to your work through Saga of the Swamp Thing. We've done an episode on Saga of the Swamp Thing, focusing on the relationship of Swampy and Abby. It's one of our most favorite conversations. So... Thank you for getting us to that podcast and now joining us on our podcast. A great pleasure to be here with both of you. So the conceit of our podcast is we find different comic book couples and we read a relationship book and we try to apply what we learn from the relationship book to the couple and then apply what we learn from that conversation to our own relationship. And I found Swamp Thing to be such a compelling character and kind of a model for my own life and how I want how I want to lead my life always ready to be renewed and always ready to be a whole new person but what I particularly loved on what you did with your collaboration with Alan Moore and John Totalman is you took Abby and you turned her into a real character I hated her origin where she's this... <laughs> yeah, understood. Because she seemed to be a vital person in this small town, like, working at this clinic, and then she meets Matt Cable, and she'll like, I'll just follow you. Whatever you're doing, I'm down for. And through her dissolution of her relationship with Matt and then the growth of her relationship with Swamp Thing, she became her own person. And I would love to talk about what that transformation was like for you, like what your conversations around what you wanted to do with Abby were. Um, okay, I'm certainly up for discussing all that, and hopefully my memory will not be faulty. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I, and I can only speak for my uh, experience and take on mm -hmm. um, 
the collaborative nature of working on Swamp Thing. I came into the book, um, oh God, I think I started assisting Tom Yates uh, off and on, starting with issue number eight, when Marty Pasco was still the, the writer on the series, and Tom Yates had been on the book since the first issue. And we're talking about Saga of the Swamp Thing, which was the 1980s iteration of the right. character. So, um, so when I came on the book, I mean, I was, I, I was essentially a pair of hands, um, you know, pitching in to help Tom. And I didn't really feel... Uh, proprietary at all. You know, I, I didn't have a, unlike John Tolbin, uh, John uh, Tolbin had been a, a lifelong fan of Bernie Wrightson's work. So for John, Swamp Thing was a really important character to him. Um, for me, my connection, um, Lisa, was more to the genre we were working in. I, I had this crazy... I had this crazy fixation on uh, if I could get into the comics field, I was going to try to, uh, you know, be one of the forces for good, dragging the horror genre into the late 20th century. Because I felt like horror comics had really gotten stale and they had really gotten fixated on just reiterating certain formulas. And in the context of, you know, short horror comic stories, Everybody was still working very much in the shadow of EC comics from the early 50s. And in the context of a comic series like Swamp Thing, everything felt like a soap opera to me, you know? The, the, the horror element, and you brought up, you know, Swamp Thing being a monster comic. You know, the monsters were just sort of, I don't know, these lumpy guys that felt bad about themselves and wallowing in self-pity and, you know... Oh poor me! I'm in a monster's body, um, and I and I and, and I'm kind of you know I'm being sarcastic and I'm phrasing it to you, but I really I I really saw um, formulas driving everything in such a way that it was just sort of tying down what what I saw as being clearly possible with horror comics. Um, so when I first came in on Swamp Thing, I was just a pair of hands, right? I was just there to help. Uh, any way I could, Tom Yates, to get the current issue done. Um, the book was always behind the eight ball through no fault of Tom's. Um, my understanding is that they had launched Saga of the Swamp Thing to tie in with the release of the Wes Craven movie. Right. Um, and that was supposed to come out at a certain period of time, and then it got postponed because uh, AFCO Embassy, the studio that made it and released it, uh, had gone through a change in management. And if I remember correctly, Norman Lear was now one of the co-owners, the guy who created All in the Family and mm -hmm. Maud and all these progressive TV comedy shows in the, in the early 70s. And he hated horror, or he didn't have any, any um, passion for it anyway. So Swamp Thing sort of got orphaned as a movie, and it screwed up the schedule on the book. And as a result, Tom was late when they started issue one. Yeah. <laughs> Through, you know, he was late because the schedule was, like, completely off. And he never got caught up. Um, then when I came on, to answer your question, Lisa, um, it wasn't until issue 16 that John Tolman and I were, were had... We had auditioned and we got the job. We were going to be the new art team on the book. Mm -hmm. And Marty Pasco at that point in time uh, had decided, 
I remember a, a, a long letter from Marty where he had decided that he was going to shift gears on the series so that it would be a series of self-contained con- self one-shot stories. Okay. Um, and we did that issue 16 where it was sort of our, our ode to the Twilight Zone. And Abby wasn't even really a character mm-hmm. to me at this point in time. She was sort of a cipher, you know? Um, uh, the most active couple in it was the couple that ended up getting sidelined at the end of issue 19 and 20 and that Alan brought back later in, in a one issue where we see that Dennis and Liz Tremaine are this completely dysfunctional couple where he's become like this misogynist monster keeping her imprisoned in, in their home and so on. Mm-hmm. So Abby sort of wasn't a character. I was aware of Abby... Uh, as a character from, you know, Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson's original Swamp Thing series, where, and correct me if I'm wrong, she was sort of this, you know, Bavarian waif. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and and uh, Bernie was the one who designed her with the white hair and the two streaks of, of black, which was a distinctive character design, and it was a really great look. Mm-hmm. But she really wasn't much of a character. She was sort of the... I don't know, she was sort of like a weird little lost young woman, and the only association that was particularly strong in the series was that her uncle, Arcane, had become the nominal villain of the series. So so once Alan was on the book, it was really Alan that right from the get-go kind of seized the reins, and he decided all the characters had to be, you know, more believable. And um, it was John Toddleben who had been pushing for, even before John and I were, were teaming up on the book, John had been pushing for a time that Swamp Thing uh, should be more of um, a, a real vegetable mm. being. Yeah. You know, he shouldn't be just like a, a guy trapped in a mud body that, you know, the more, um, the more physiological uh, approach to... Uh, making Swamp Thing into a truly botanical character, that he was actually a plant being, was the way to go. And it was Alan Moore, once he came on, uh, who, uh, you know, uh, crafted making uh, Alec Holland Swamp Thing into a truly elemental character. And that... A byproduct is once Alan redefined Swamp Thing as not being human and never having been human, allowed us, uh, the first issue that Alan, John, myself, and Rick Beach worked on together was uh, number 21, The Anatomy Lesson. And right with issue 22, suddenly Abby was front and center. She became the protagonist of the comic. Almost more than Swamp Thing, Mm -hmm. Abby was the protagonist of the comic at that point. And, you know, we never... I could be wrong, Lisa, but I don't remember a conscious conversation about Abby. We just sort of did it, you know? And oddly enough, and I wasn't aware of this until John and I actually got to go, we we got invited to go to England to attend UCAC, uh, spelled U-K-A-K, and it was the big London comics convention that they did every year and John and I got invited to go which meant that UCAC paid our way and that was the first time we met Alan and um, when we met Alan and his first wife Phyllis uh, we were all like in the same economic class you know Alan and Phyllis didn't have money they were 
like John Taliban and his wife Michelle, like myself and my first wife Marlene, we were just like on the bottom end of the economic ladder, e scraping out something like a living. <laughs> and Abby sort of became the distillation of that, right? Mm -hmm. She became this, you know, low end of the income ladder uh, working woman. Uh, trying to make it, and she essentially had to do it on her own because Matt Cable was worse than useless. He was possessed by her dead uncle. So, you know, and 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 um, so Abby sort of unconsciously became the focal point and the and the embodiment of all the class issues that Alan and Phyllis. Steve and Marlene, John and Michelle were dealing with day to day, and I don't remember us ever discussing it. I, you know, it just sort of happened. We just sort of started doing it, and I would pencil Abby, and she'd be wearing, you know, I, I had her wearing what we and our friends wore, you know, denim pants, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, worn out shirts, uh, flip flops or sandals. I mean, she was just like suddenly one of us. And when we got to meet Alan and Phyllis, that's how they lived too, you know? <laughs> and, um, so Abby just sort of became, uh, I don't mean to be, um, dismissive or glib about it, but Abby sort of became our instant projection screen. Mm -hmm. Like we probably poured more of ourselves into Abby than we were even aware. Mm. because we just did it. It just happened. And right from issue 22, Abby was pretty much herself. You know, I I only reread those issues again recently, and it's amazing to me how seamlessly Abby comes to the fore, and Abby is Abby. She's mm. herself. Yeah. Um, and she wasn't any of us, and she wasn't based on anybody we knew. She was kind of our, our anima. Mm. Uh, when you are... In those early stages of getting to know Abby as a character, uh, and and from an from an illustrative point of view, because she does, you know, she has those characteristics that Bernie Wrightson gave her, you know, the hair and and, and somewhat of the same body shape, but she, her form is different, and it is changing in those first few issues that uh, you and John are illustrating. Like, how did you yeah, land on that mode? So let's talk about the nuts and bolts of, of cartooning, of drawing. Yeah. Um, John had a certain skill set, and I had a certain skill set. And when we auditioned for the book, uh, uh, we delivered two sets of, of uh, sort of demonstration pages to Len Wein, trying out for the job. We did one set of pages where I penciled and John inked, and we did another set of pages where John penciled and I inked. And by that point in time, we're talking 1982, I had done way more comics work than John had. Uh, John was primarily uh, an illustrator at that point in time. He'd done a couple of comic piece, comic stories, but I already had, you know, I, I'd been working as a freelancer from 1977, so I had five years of work under my belt, you know, working for a wide variety of publishers and a wide variety of venues doing complete comic stories. And Len recognized that I had the stronger uh, storytelling and page design chops at that point in time. And John had the more lush and, uh, and um, seductive line. John is a much richer 
uh, representational artist than I'll ever be. You know, my inks are very spastic and, and, uh, and I'm not being pejorative there. It's just, it's the energy of the line that drives me. Whereas John has this very lush illustrative style. It's really beautiful. So the reason I'm going on and on about that is among John's skill sets that I did not have at that time is John could sit down and draw like pinup women, right? I mean, when I would sit down and draw just off the top of my head, I drew monsters and dinosaurs, and John did that too. But he drew really beautiful women. And he was of that uh, Virgil Finley school of illustration. Virgil Finley, uh, Franklin Booth. I mean, John had really cultivated uh, a rich depth of knowledge and a rich facility with pen, brush, and ink, and drawing... Uh, what is often called good girl art was part of John's fun. That mm -hmm. to him was very pleasurable. I'll never forget, after we were doing Swamp Thing, we started doing a lot of conventions, and uh, we were at one show, and John, John, somebody wanted John to do a, a sketch of Abby. And I was always defer to John, because his Abbeys were way more beautiful than my Abbeys. <laughs> and, and the guy he was drawing it for was like watching John with his eyes bugging out of his head, and please forgive my French, this is what the fans said, not what John and I said or thought. The guy at one point said, God, if I could do that, I would just stay home, draw, and jerk off all day. <laughs> um, my approach to Abby was I was still struggling with um, one of the fundamentals of drawing um, sequential narratives and one of the real struggles in drawing periodical comics where you got to crank out 20-something pages every month. And that was making a character look consistently like themselves. And very early in my uh, Cubert school years, I think around 1977, um, I was I would spend my summers out of New Jersey. The Cubert school was in Dover, New Jersey, and I would like take the summer months to come back to Vermont, my home state. And I was I had spent some time with friends up north, and I had gone out one night to uh, a little pub in Waitsfield, Vermont, and I was sketching on napkins, because I was by myself, I wasn't with any friends at that time, I had just gone by myself, and I'm not a drinker, you know, like I don't go to bars and pubs regularly, but I was in Waitsfield and I ended up at this small pub, and this young woman, and her name was Debbie, came up, she saw me drawing, and she struck up a conversation, and she said, I'm working with this old cartoonist named Vincent Fago, and he's in Bethel, Vermont, and you should come visit him. And she gave me um, Vince Fago's uh, phone number. And so when I finished my visit with my friends, I remember hitchhiking, uh, and it's one of the three times in my entire life I ever hitchhiked, and uh, I got a ride down to Bethel, Vermont, and I vin visited Vincent Fago. And Vince Fago, you can look him up online. He's one of the old Golden Age cartoonists. He had worked in animation. He's the guy that ran as editor Timely Atlas's um, offices, what later became Marvel Comics, when Stan Lee was in the military. Vince Fago was kind of the guy in charge. And Vince Fago also had done comic strips. He had a Peter, Peter Rabbit comic strip. And when I visited him, he was doing this series of children's books that involved these birds. They were like almost stick drawings of birds. Um, and he had also edited and packaged those classics uh, comics adaptations mm -hmm. that were in paperback form, the Pendulum Press books. Oh, yeah. So 
So he was the guy working with Alex Nino and Nesta Redondo, all those Filipino artists doing adaptations of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Jane Eyre and War of the Worlds and all that. And Vince was very generous with his time. They let me stay overnight and he looked at my portfolio and he looked at my work and this is my the end of my first year at the Cubert School just before I started my second year. And he said, you know, you got some real strengths and, and you got some good drawing chops, but you're biggest weakness is your characters don't like to look like the same person panel to panel. Hmm. And he looked at my folio in the evening. We had had dinner earlier and he knew I loved movies. That became one of the topics of conversation when we were having dinner, uh, everybody at the table. And he said, you know movies, you love movies. He said, you have to start casting your comics, right? If The only way you're going to learn how to draw characters consistently, panel to panel, page to page, is act as if your comic story is a movie or a TV show and you're casting your characters and get all the photo reference you can get and copy it. Like, you're a young cartoonist. It's okay to be copying and swiping right now because you're still learning your craft. And that's what I did. And the first story I did after that visit with... Um, uh, Vince uh, in Bethel, Vermont, was I did a story for DC called The Ouija's Omen. And I cast as this, you know, corrupt sheriff in a small town, Strutter Martin, one of my favorite character actors mm -hmm. from the 60s and 70s. Um, he's the guy in Cool Hand Luke who says, uh, what we have here is failure to communicate. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's Strutter Martin. Yeah. Now, what does this have to do with Abby? Why is Bissette <laughs> rambling on about this? I start work on Swamp Thing, and I have to cast Abby. Mm -hmm. And I uh, had recently um, seen a number of movies from Alien to Ghostbusters, and Sigourney Weaver was this really strong presence on screens at that time. So I got my hands on a bunch of People magazine and movie magazines with interviews with Sigourney. But most importantly, I got my hands on the Richard J. Annobile uh, trade paperback of the movie Alien, all told in pictures. Mm. This is before the video market mm -hmm. existed, right? There was yeah. no way, there was no home video. So Richard Annobile was this guy who would publish books that were like photo comic versions of popular films. And Sigourney Weaver was my model for Abby in my pencils. And you would recognize her if you saw my pencils. And then they would go to John Toddleben, and John had a clear picture of who Abby was in his head. And he would soften and change her likeness. And it took me about three issues of back and forth with John, right? Because I would study John's inks when I got the photocopies from him of his inks. And by the fourth issue we were doing Abby, I could draw Abby essentially freehand. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I had her in my head by that point. But it took me, like, three full issues with Sigourney Weaver being my model and then John going, no, no, she looks like this. Mm -hmm. And I would still use Sigourney as a model just to get the, you know, she had a strong jaw. Um, she had really, she could have really fierce eyes. And I wanted that strength in Abby as a character because she was stuck in a fucking monster comic. Mm -hmm. And we, I knew by the nature of what we were doing that Abby was going to go through hell, literally as it turned out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not once or twice, but issue after issue after issue. So I wanted the, that to be you know, part of her physical composition, that strength of character. But it was really John who uh, cleaned up my scruffy Abby 
Cable and uh, turned her into the character that you came to know. Uh, talking about that collaboration that the three of you had on that, I mean, it must have taken some time to get used to one another. I can't imagine somebody inking over my art and then changing it in such a drastic fashion. And nah, nah, we fell right into it. Yeah. You gotta remember that, uh, and, and there weren't three of us, there were four of us. Rick Veach was part of the book right from the start. In fact, Rick Veach started assisting Tom Yates around Saga the Swamp Thing number two. Um, and part of it was because Rick, Rick has never missed a deadline in his life. <laughs> so Tom Yates, who has missed many deadlines in his life, <laughs> and Steve Bissad, who has missed almost every deadline in his life. <laughs> we, you know, Rick was sort of, he was one of our um, foundational um, compadres and partners in crimes. And uh, Rick started pitching in now and again whenever Tom needed help, starting with issue two. Also, John Pottleman started pitching in with Tom Yates starting with issue two. So by the time John and I got the gig, uh, we had been working together, you know, as friends and and a, this sort of loose-knit backup team that Tom Yates could, could tap uh, for the duration of the series, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And so... Also, you have to remember, I mean, Rick and I met in the fall of 1976. He was one of the first people I met at the Kubert School, and we became immediate friends. John Tottleman joined uh, our lineup of classmates in the fall of 1977. And if memory serves, uh, John did not complete the Kubert School program. Um, he wa- began working freelance uh and was already working in what would have been his second year of a two-year program, and he didn't stick with the school. So, and we actually lived together for a period of time. Uh, After Rick and I graduated in 1978, um, one of our classmates was Tom Yates, and Tom, Rick, myself, and John Toddleben, we all found a rental house in um, the town that was right next to Dover, New Jersey. And we rented a house together where the four of us lived. So we were used to drawing with each other, you know? Mm -hmm. We we would do it for fun. The first collaborations I ever did with John was just fun stuff that we did. Or you'd start drawing something on your drawing board and, you know, the other guy would come in and take a look at it and go, oh, cool, I got some ideas. And you'd hand it to him and he'd go finish it. And my um, role model in that was I grew up loving jazz. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, One of my childhood friends was James Harvey, who's still with us, and he's a jazz pianist and uh, and trombonist and a jazz composer and performer, and I grew up listening to Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, Eric Dolphy, Archie Shep. So to me, what we were doing, John, myself, Rick Veach, Tom Yates, when we collaborated, is we were jazz musicians. We were jamming. That was part of the fun of it, right? And um, so there was none of that discomfort that you just described, Brad, right? I was totally comfortable working with John. It was a little weird because we we had to regiment our approach in a way we never had before. Like, I had to turn in finished pencils to an editor, Len Wein, and then Karen Berger took over as of issue 25. Um, And to come back to your original question, Lisa, uh, Karen Berger also had a hand in all this because right. having uh, having Karen as an editor, um, she had a strong sense of who Abby was. But by then, we had sort of codified who our Abby was, and Karen followed suit. But there was no discomfort, you know, handing off pages to one of our compadres. 
when Rick would come down to my house in Wilmington, I didn't have a separate studio. I had a room in the house that I worked on swamping it. If Rick came down to pitch in for a day or two, we would just sit in the same room at two different drawing boards and we could swap pages back and forth because we had been working like that since, you know, 1976. And same with John. Uh, the big job I finished for Marvel Comics, my last comics job for Marvel, was a story that was published in Bizarre Adventures called The Blood Bequest. It was a Dracula origin story that um, my late friend Steve Perry had scripted. And um, I was up against the end of the deadline. I had a friend who was about to have um, a baby, and it was a home, uh, home birth. And my wife Marlene left to go and be with them for that birth, and the plan was I was gonna finish this Dracula story and then get on the bus and join them. And John Tolliban, God bless him, came down and stayed with me for three days or so, and we finished that story together. And we were just handing the pages to each other. It was very organic. If you two and I sat down with that issue of Blood Bequest, there's some pages I could tell you what John did and that what I did, and there's some pages I couldn't tell you because that's how organically we were working together. Mm. And that was before Swamp Thing. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's obviously there's like a, a special alchemy that you all had uh, at that time. Well, I love the parallel of Charlie Parker and Miles Davis because they did modal jazz, right? Which had yeah. this set of rules, but then those rules, like they thrive, the rules thrived on being broken, and that is what That's created right. the music. Very cool. You absolutely nailed it, Lisa. And within those rules, within those structures, you got to improvise. Yeah. Right, And it was all about, uh, within those structures, each musician got to go off in another direction. And as long as you came back to the structure uh -huh. so that it could go over to the next musician, everything flowed. <laughs> and the free flow of it was integral to the pleasure of it. Mm. And it was integral to the pleasure of doing it, and it was integral to the pleasure of you as readers reading it. Yeah. And it should be invisible to you, just like listening to a good jazz album. It should be invisible to you who's doing what, when, or why. Yeah, yeah. You know, looking at those comics, you know, half the appeal is how uh, you guys were pushing the boundaries of the of the form and how you're playing with panels. And you know, after the anatomy lesson, probably the most famous issue is the Rites of Spring issue. Literally, the sexiest issue of comics. Ever created. <laughs> so hot. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> you know, that whole issue came out of a postcard I sent Alan. Uh -huh. uh, we were in the middle of the three-part demon story arc where Abby's working at Elysium Lawns with the uh, autistic kids. Mm. And I, I, I was drawing... I couldn't tell you which one of the three issues it was, but I was working on a sequence where um, Abby was going through, you know, another shit storm. <laughs> and uh, I, I always drew, I drew Abby as a real woman, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, I wasn't into uh, what was known at the time as cheesecake, mm -hmm. comic art. You know, I was not into drawing. I had no interest in superheroes. I never have. And I, I found those kind of archetypes of women in those stretch costumes where it was essentially, I'm looking at a nude woman in, in you know, some sort of skin-tight outfit. I just found that 
unappealing. It didn't interest me as a reader. It didn't interest me on a on a uh, lurid level. I just and it certainly didn't interest me as an artist. So when I was drawing Abby. When she was afraid, you know, she sweat. She had snot coming out of her nose. She was, you know, she was like all of us, you know? Mm -hmm. You don't look good when you're freaked out. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was working on one of those panels and pages, and I had an idea, and I wrote on a postcard to Alan. I said, you know, Alan, we're really putting Abby through the mill, and I know it's going to get worse. Why don't we do an issue where it's just Abby and Swamp Thing in the swamp, and they get to have a good day together? Mm-hmm. That was it. That was all I suggested. Like, let's do one issue where there's no monsters, there's no threat. They just get to enjoy each other's company for a day. Mm-hmm. And I popped it in the mail. I didn't even photocopy it. I don't know when. I, you know, I kept photocopies of, of some of my letters, and I kept all of Alan's letters to me. But I don't know when I sent that postcard. And Alan came right back. He loved the idea. And he and to Alan, it was going to be our romance issue, mm-hmm. right? And Alan was going to use it to consummate the relationship with Abby and Swamp Thing. And then it became our underground comic, right? Yeah. I, what made me want to draw comics was not mainstream comics. It was underground comics. That's what made me want to work in comics. And it's part of why the day I met Rick Veach at the Kubert School, he's the guy whose work had prompted my even daring to apply to the Kubert School because I love Two-Fisted Zombies, the mm-hmm. comic he and his brother Tom had done so for good. Last Gasp. Mm-hmm. So to me, when I got the letter from Alan about his, his response to my postcard and what he thought we could do, I was like, yes, let's do a trip. You know, let's do a trip comic. Let's do, I want to do my version of Greg Iron's Light. And if you've never seen Greg Iron's work, take a look at it. He was my favorite underground cartoonist. And it's Irons, spelt like the metal, Mm. I-R-O-N-S. And he did a solo comic called Light. And it was an abstract comic, essentially. And that's what I was thinking of. And if you sit down with an issue of Light, which you can find on eBay or online, um, and you sit down with Rights of Spring, you will see exactly what I'm talking about. And it wasn't that I copied Greg Irons. It was that that kind of free-form emotional flow of imagery is what fueled that issue. Once Abby bites into that potato off of Alex's back and begins the trip, we were just going to do this you know, illustrative rush of love. And um, it was as much a sex comic as a love comic, but it wasn't explicit in the way that would have been problematic for a publisher like DC at that time. Um, And it was really as pure an expression as I think I've ever been able to put into any comic ever worked on of um, love between two characters. And not what it looks like, because, you know, sex comics can be, they can be fun, they can be arousing, they can be, you know, joyful, but they never delineate what the emotions feel like. And that, to me, is what we tried to do with Rites of Spring. You know, we tried to, I was trying to draw what it felt like to be Abby, Mm -hmm. finally able to be with her lover that she had never been able to be with, because he's a plant and Mm -hmm. she's not. Mm -hmm. And so that became a, a, like, almost within the framework of a representationally drawn mainstream four-color newsstand comic book, that was as raw and open as mercurial an expression of passion and love as I could possibly get down onto paper. Mm -hmm. And we were all in sync. That's what Alan was doing. That's what John was doing. Bam. It worked. Oh, man. 
I'm so glad, like, because anything else would just be too evil dead, you know? Um, well, yeah, right, and we weren't interested in going there. We, yeah. When we lost the code uh, with Swamp Thing 29, when we lost the code, there's two ways we could have gone. We could have, like, all right, we are going to be the pedal little metal horror comic of all time. Mm -hmm. Or we went the way we went, which was, okay, kids' gloves are off. We can tell adult stories now. Mm -hmm. And adult horror means all emotions are on the canvas. You're right. Mm -hmm. We weren't just a monster comic anymore when we lost the code. We could do a love issue, you know? And, and that was the same freedom that allowed us to do some of the other stories we did, which were more overtly horror stories. But that issue of Swamp Thing was as much a horror comic as anything else we did because it was irrational, it was all about an emotion, and we went as far as we could go with it at that time. Growing up, Brad was more of like the horror guy, the monster guy, I'm about the age of your son. I'm 36. So I okay. grew up on musicals and Disney princesses. And that's what I was into. And <laughs> but, Well, there you go. But my in, once I started dating Brad, my in to horror and into monsters was the romance and was the passion. And, and I was just wondering, like, as you were growing up as kind of the monster kid, horror kid, what were your blueprints for romance and romantic couples? You know, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, a lot of the role, I can't, I don't look at narratives as role models. Mm -hmm. I know they sometimes are, and that some people go to reading and comics and movies and theater and music looking for role models. To me, a lot of times the story functioned as worst case scenario, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to be that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but there were a lot of positive models out there, too. I mean, don't forget, I mean, King Kong's a monster movie, and it's right. one of the ultimate bizarre romance stories of all time. They're never going to be together. And it's completely wrong that King Kong even wants Aunt Daryl, right? Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet. It is what it is, this bizarre, you know, and when we look at it culturally, it's this bizarre, pseudo-racist, you know, primal distillation of miscegenation fears and all that crazy shit. That's the negative side of it. But on the positive side, it's this interspecies romance. Mm -hmm. And the tragedy of it is he wants to be with her and he can't be with her. And a lot of my favorite monsters when I was growing up, that was their story, right? I love Creature from the Black Lagoon. The yeah. Gill Man is one of my all-time favorite monsters. I still love to draw him to this day, and I just do it off the top of my head. I don't need to take out photos. The Gill Man is, like, burnt into my gray matter in my brain tissue. And it's the same thing. Like, he wants to be with, you know, the character played by Julie Adams, but it's never going to happen. And he's a fish guy, and she's a woman. <laughs> and... It's wrong in so many ways, and I've read tons of academic books and treatises about, you know, the um, cultural underpinnings of those kind of monster movies, but as a kid watching that, 
I just felt the tragedy of it. Mm-hmm. Like I related to the Gill Man because as a young, awkward boy who didn't have a girlfriend, I was more like him than I was ever going to be like the heroes of those movies, right? Yeah. They got to end up with Julie Adams. I was the skinny runt that was <laughs> never going to end up with anybody. So Monsters kind of became this perfect uh, vessel for... Uh, all these emotions that were very inchoate and inexpressible and monsters were a way to express those feelings and especially to express the feelings you couldn't put words to and that includes things like longing and aching and wishing that you could be in a healthy relationship but you couldn't be right because you were too young or you were too skinny or you had too many pimples or you were a stupid kid or whatever you know and uh, and that, to me, is part of the foundation of a lot of the monster stories that we all grew up with. Look, Boris Karloff famously said time and time and time again over the decades he was interviewed that he would get letters from kids because kids understood Frankenstein's monster. Bam! He puts his finger right on it. And he's right, you know? That's part of why almost all kids go through a monster phase, and then there's kids like you and I, Brad, who never outgrow the monster phase, right? And I don't think it's unhealthy or weird. I think it's very, I mean, for me, it's been a very healthy relationship because when I'm drawing monsters, I'm giving form to the things I can't or won't or aren't allowed to give form to in real life. And those aren't just negative things. Monsters aren't the embodiment of everything evil or bad or terrible about us. They're also the embodiment of the things that are beautiful or or painful or the longing of our lives. And, and, you know, that's part of why monsters have been such a powerful and lasting, they go back to the beginning of our species. And, um, and it was, that was part of the front of working on Swamp Thing. I mean, here was a perfect sympathetic monster character who once Alan was on board as a writer and we reinvented this character by actually bringing him back to his, uh, archetypal roots. He's the green man. He's mm-hmm. the elemental. He's the embodiment of fertility and transformation and growth and renewal and reinvention. Those are all good things. And Swamp Thing was the embodiment of that. It's part of why it was so much fun to work on that character. Um, and because we're doing a comic book, and yes, it is a soap opera. I used that term earlier. You have to introduce conflict and so on. But I think Swamp Thing, when he was in our hands, was always a pretty positive character. You know, I can't think of any issue we did where he wasn't. Um, he wasn't perfect, <laughs> but none of us are. So, so, so that for me is what the monsters are about, Lisa, right there. But that's what I love about monster romances. Because Swamp Thing is a monster and their love can overcome his form, it makes it makes their love truer than her love to Matt Cable. It does, but one of the benefits, whatever was done with Abby before we were on the book, one of the things given to us by the people who worked on the book before us is we never had to do the story of Abby mm. being revolted by Swamp Thing. That baggage was out of the way. Right. Mm. So we could cut to the chase and begin 
with the relationship being positive. We didn't have to tell that old story that we've all seen or read or experienced time and time again of the beautiful woman who meets the monster, it's Beauty and the Beast, oh, he's ugly, you know. Whoever went before us had already done all that sufficiently that once Alan was on the book, we could just start with, okay, they're in a relationship. Let's see where this goes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We didn't have to fuck around with any of that, you know, stumbling around. So th that allowed us to be pure, to use the word you use, Lisa. We mm -hmm. could start with it being a pure relationship and then see where it was, you know, take it where, where it might lead. Um, and that was very freeing. And that was probably the most unusual thing about our being able to step into Swamp Thing when we did. I mean, that's the beauty and the frustration of comic books, right? Especially with characters who have a history is that uh, you you can pick up in the middle of or you can pick up in the middle of their story and treat the writer and the artist as the beginning of where you're following. Uh, what am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say, like, you you have Swamp Thing at a certain point when you take over and you leave Swamp Thing at a certain point, And then it's up to the other person to carry the reins. But I imagine that also when you finally, you know, leave the book and you, you leave before Alan does and, you know, post-crisis and all that craziness that's going on, uh, somebody else takes your your characters or your versions of those characters. And I am, you know, again, like I, I just can't imagine what that experience is. Do you just leave Swamp Thing you know, like, do you have to remove well, yourself from Swamp I was, Thing? I was, I was leaving Swamp Thing at a time when Alan was still the writer on the book. Yeah. And I was leaving Swamp Thing knowing that Rick Veach, my best friend in the world, was taking over the book. So it was in good hands. Mm -hmm. It's like, I didn't even feel like a parent, like, leaving my kids with a babysitter. It's like, okay, these are good adoptive parents. <laughs> you know? And I, I knew they were going to do their best because Alan, Rick, John, myself... Uh, even the people we were lucky enough to work with on the fill-in issues, when Bissett inevitably fell too far behind, Stan Walk, um, you know, and so on, um, we we were graced with great creative partners on that book, and um, so I didn't feel any uh, any remorse over oh you know are they going to fuck it up after I go that mm -hmm. that was an issue for me. I'm sure it was for Rick, you know, because Rick left Swamp Thing under yeah pretty cataclysmic circumstances, yeah. you know, with, with the, the planned, um, Jesus. as it's well known these days, the Jesus issue yeah. that never got published. Um, but when I left, it was under, you know, I left under my terms. It's like, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. Um, but I also left being very secure that the hands that were taking over the book were going to seamlessly extend uh, the kind of work that we had been doing collaboratively up to that point. So, you know, it was a pretty comfortable departure. Um, I didn't, there were on a, on a lot of levels I didn't want to go, mm -hmm. but, you know, party time was over. <laughs> I'll never forget, the, part of the reason I left, I think I said this in the interview that the both of you have already heard, was I had a dream one night, and Jason Woodrow came walking into my dream, and I woke up the next morning, it's like, I gotta get off this book, you know? <laughs> it's like, when, when corporate-owned characters are walking into your dream, it's really time to, like, leave that playpen and really leave it behind. There were other issues, some of them much more pressing in real world, but that was a pretty strong signal f for me that a little too much of my... Uh, 
my imaginative space, my personal space, my creative life was now owned by Time Warner. And uh, once it was erupting into my dreams like that, I <laughs> wanted out. You know, it was time to reoccupy my own life. Sure, sure. You know, but I guess what I'm I'm curious about is after having spent so much time on a character like that, uh, are you able to enjoy the character beyond your own work and beyond your own interpretation? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kept reading the book, and I still... I don't pick it up every issue, mm -hmm. um, I, but uh, I, I go back and revisit it um, now and again. The last... Um, the last steady stream of issues I read is when Yannick was the yeah. um, illustrator on the book. Um, you know the run I'm talking yeah, about, the right? Scott Snyder, like, uh, yeah, yeah, that was the last run that, and I enjoyed it enough that I corresponded with uh, the artist for a time, and I uh, we even swapped a couple things in the mail. Like I sent him a Besets Market T-shirt, <laughs> which was the store I worked in when I was a kid, from the age of six till twenty-one. Um, and he took it in the spirit intended, you know? And uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I stay with it. Um, it was fun watching the TV show oh, yeah. uh, that came out. I thought it was, out of all the attempts to carry Swamp Thing over to another media, it was by far, uh, you know, the most imaginative. There were things that didn't work for me in the show, but um, uh, both my wife and I enjoyed it. Marjorie doesn't like horror. Marjorie... <laughs> Marjorie loves all the things you love, Lisa. Romance, musicals, you know. Um, but she, I, we've been together 26 years, and there are weird fucking things Marge never would have gravitated to had we not come together. She loves Twin Peaks. Yeah. We're watching, we're rewatching X-Files right now, you know, and part of what makes X-Files palatable, even when some of the episodes get really gruesome, is that relationship between Fox Muller and Scully, you know, and mm -hmm. it, it, it that's enough of a platonic romance to it that that carries through. Um, and, uh, and I see a lot of my favorite horror comics as being romance comics. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the strongest bodies of uh, art authored work where the writer, not the artist, was propelling the body of work is the body of work that a writer named Bruce Jones mm -hmm. did for Warren Publishing when Louise Simonson was the editor of Creepy, Eerie, and Vampirilla. And if you go back and look at those Warren stories that Bruce Jones wrote, they are all love stories, almost to a, almost to a story. And he got to work with Bernie Wrightson, he got to work with Richard Corbin, he got to work with Jeff Jones, I mean, just Russ Heath, wonderful artists, but it's Bruce's stories that carry the day, and they are some of the best horror comics ever published. Mm. And it's, you know, the one that everybody knows if they're aware of Bernie Wrightson's work or, or love horror comics would be the story Jennifer, mm -hmm. which was adapted, you know, for one of the episodes of the Masters of Horror anthology uh, cable series. Um, but Bru that, that was not the best of the stories that Bruce wrote. And uh, they are all love stories. And Bruce understood that, you know, when romance goes wrong, it's a horror story. <laughs> and sometimes when romance goes right, it's a horror story. <laughs> and he wrote the best romance horror uh, fiction in comics form of, I think, anybody in the 20th century. Um, there's a lot of cartoonists who have done terrific work since that I could also talk about. But um, if you're curious about what informed my approach to what we were doing on Swamp Thing, 
go back and find and read even five or a half dozen of those Bruce Jones uh, one-shot stories. They're all self-standing. They're not a continuity with characters. And some of that work is just brilliant. And it still reads beautifully. I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to check that out. Like, my... Yeah, check it out. And some of them are quite funny as well, Lisa. Mm-hmm. Like, he did one... There's one issue of... And please forgive me if I get the title of the magazine wrong, because in a lot of ways, Eerie, Creepy, and Vampirella were <laughs> pretty interchangeable. Um, I think it's an issue of Creepy that had a Richard Corbin cover. And Warren, for a time, uh, did a number of issues of Eerie and Creepy where they would have a cover painting and all the stories inside that issue were based on the cover painting. So it was different writers and artists telling different stories, but that image was their inspiration, the springboard. And the cover is a Richard Corbin painting of uh, a woman wearing cut-off jeans and a T-shirt sitting on a giant lizard that's like gnawing on, you know, some small rodent that it's caught in the desert. (laughs) And, And she looks comfortable. Like, clearly these two creatures have some kind of a relationship. And the Bruce Jones story in that issue is the one that Corbin illustrates. And it is hilarious. It is a really funny story. Um, But it's hilarious when it gets to where it's going. You know, it reads like a science fiction fantasy story until you get to where it's going. And it is one of my favorite Bruce Jones stories. I can't remember the title of the story. I'd have to look it up. We'll find it. You'll find it. And and to me, Bruce Jones, that's his best body of work. He later edited and wrote Twisted Tales for Pacific Comics. And I know a lot of people love that work, but I was so disappointed mm-hmm. because he got his own horror anthology comic. And what did he do? He did a fucking EC comic. Right? <laughs> yeah. And it's like he forgot everything that he had done at Warren. And I'm, you know, I'm being dismissive because I I so love the work he did at Warren. It's more likely he got it out of his system and Twisted Tales was going to be something else for him. But the fact that it ended up just being another attempt to emulate uh, what EC Comics had done just fine in 1951, 52, 53, there's no need to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, my interest in horror by the time I was done with Swamp Thing is embodied in everything that was published in Taboo. Yeah. That's where that's where I wanted to see the genre go. And I ended up, you know, being able to accomplish it, not as an artist, but as an editor. Mm. Um, and in a way, that makes perfect sense too, because Archie Goodwin did the same thing, editing Creepy Eerie Vampirilla in the 60s. Louise Simonson, one of the best editors and writers that ever worked in the business, Louise's issues that she edited for Warren are some of the best issues they ever published. So I feel like, yeah, I'm part of a good tradition that with Taboo, as an editor or co-editor, you know, I ended up being able to implement something that I could only take so far as a penciler on Swamp Thing. This sounds right up my alley. Like, my complete lack of horror has a lot to do with my upbringing because like you, I was raised Catholic, but but I was like super sheltered. So I didn't see my first horror movie until I was literally an adult. And, um, and I fell in love right away. And the joke is on them because the story of Jesus Christ is the greatest horror story of all time. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, part of why I gravitated to horror was I recognized pretty early on <laughs> that all these, my mother had a book of the saints, 
Yeah. Of, like an illustrated book of the saints. And I used to stare at that book. And I'm sure my mother thought, oh, look at little Stevie <laughs> reading about the saints. No, I was looking at those fucking pictures of them with arrows in them. Or, you know, <laughs> the saints, all their stories are the most horrific. They caught leprosy. They died the most horrible way imaginable. And, you know, boy, Catholicism was like a magic carpet into horror fiction for me. So, I d- I d- you I taught if it. You came ca- into to your adult years, Lisa. Yeah. That just means you got a lot of great stuff to catch up that's, on. That's right. So. I taught at a, a Catholic school. It was my first teaching job, and I delighted in telling the kids the story of Saint Cecilia and how oh, yeah. she was beheaded and then continued to live, and she lies in states. <laughs> I drive yeah. my. I teach comics history class, and I always drive my students nuts when I'm. I'm walking them through uh, the European broadsheets, the the predecessors oh, to what yeah. became comic strips and comic art. And one of the most vivid of them is the tortures of Saint Erasmus. Oh yeah. Who, who was this saint who kept being tortured to death, and then the angels would bring him back to life? <laughs> so he ended up being horribly tortured to death, not once, not twice, but a number of times. Um, <laughs> And it's like these sterile, sort of friendly-looking woodcuts of his intestines being wound out on a windlass, his head being wound <laughs> up. It's just like, oh, my God. So, yeah, I totally get it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, before we, we, we get out of here, you know, I know... You know, you've you've talked about Swamp Thing uh, a, a lot in your in your life and and your time with Swamp Thing. Is there any aspect uh, of that era in your career that you feel like should be recognized or is sometimes skirted over that uh, that that folks don't address or don't ask you about? Well, I think um, you and Lisa have done it. Mm. Like uh, only a handful of times have people ever asked me or talked to me about Abby. Mm. And I think Abby's the protagonist of the series. Yes. You know, um, it's Swamp Thing's book, but who dies and disappears for two or three issues? Mm. It's not Abby, you know? Mm. <laughs> um, I drew the covers for those issues when Abby is, is in that limbo mm. of believing that Swamp Thing's dead. So uh, I think you've touched on it. You know, I can't complain about nobody paying attention to my old body of work. That work (laughs) is still in print today. And, um, you know, if there's any aspect of those years that I wish were brought to light and discussed, it would be how was business being done by DC Comics Mm. at that time and how can we make sure it never happens Mm. again. And I'm not doing that as somebody feeling sour grapes because I still earn quarterly royalties from DC. And unlike almost every other publisher I ever worked for, they still pay those royalties. Mm -hmm. We get them every quarter. And it has provided a form of retirement that uh, creators like John Toddleben and myself never would have had if we had been part of Bernie Wrightson's generation. Mm -hmm. Because Bernie didn't get that, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Bernie was struggling to the end of his days trying to pay medical bills. And in fact, after Bernie passed away, uh, Tom Yates, Rick Beach, myself, John Toliban, and even Karen Berger, uh, we rallied what we had in our hands and raised as much money as we possibly could over a four or five week period um, for Bernie's widow to help deal with those medical bills. Mm. Um, I may go that route, John may go that route, but it's not because DC Comics screwed us out of royalties. Mm. We get royalties every quarter. But there were business practices that I see my students still dealing with today. That's the 
only aspect of my Swamp Thing years that I wish was discussed more openly and more often. Um, in terms of the creative work, you guys have asked the questions today that almost nobody asked, uh, and it's part of why this conversation has been just such a pleasure. Uh, so. Well, you've made our day just saying that. Thank hey, you so you made much. made my day, so <laughs> I yourself on the back. Um, the other thing I'll say before yeah. we get done, I know you're done. No, no, please. You know, Tyrant, my dinosaur yes. comic, which I yes. completely wrote and drew myself, that's as much a romance comic as Swamp Thing. And with Tyrant, it was parental love that I was digging into yes. and the issues I got to publish. I did four issues of Tyrant before the, the uh, direct sale market imploded. And if I ever get back to it, uh, which I hope to do if I Please. live long enough, um, it'll be the story of how um, the offspring of a parent, in, in the case of Tyrant, the, the, the Tyrannosaurus Rex that this mother T-Rex gives birth to, um, how the love is not repaid. Mm. And it's not in a vindictive way. It's because they're an animal. Mm. And one of the stories uh, in a future tyrant tale that I want to tell is the day the tyrant, as a young, hungry, teenage, carnivorous dinosaur, crosses paths with his aging, sick, dying mother. Mm. And she recognizes him but he doesn't recognize her. Oh, man. And how does that play out? And in terms of Swamp Thing, I sort of got to tell the human aspect of that story with the patchwork man issue that I scripted but did not draw. Mm -hmm. I guess scripted an issue of Swamp Thing that Rick Veach drew uh, with Alfredo Alcala doing the inks. Mm -hmm. Bill Sinkiewicz did the cover. And it was the story of Abby finding out that her uh, father, who her uncle had turned into the Patchwork Man, which was DC Comics' version of Frankenstein's monster, is looking for her. Mm. And he's looking for her because he's dying mm. and he's falling apart. And in a lot of ways, my scripting that issue was sort of my love letter to my kids. Like, I know it's going to be bad at the end because that's how all life ends. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sorry. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry for whatever I'm going to put you through. I don't know what it's going to be, but that issue is sort of that love note to my kids. Mm. And uh, and I had a different version of that story that I hope to tell with Tyrant, which mm. plays out very, very, very differently uh, because of the dynamic I just described to you. She knows it's him. She recognizes his odor. He has no idea. It's just another piece of meat on legs crossing his mm. path doesn't end well that's mm. all i'll say <laughs> um, but those are those are love stories too you know yeah, those are love yeah. stories too well i would love to have you back and do an entire tyrant uh series of conversations uh I, I, i'm totally game all right yes. you guys ask i will respond well so. thank you so much steve and you know uh you gotta plug your books that are coming out we had a really long conversation about the brood before we started talking about swamp thing our listeners can go to film school rejects and read that interview there um but uh, yeah, actually uh, I'll, I'll i'll leave this with i've got three books coming out yes. um the brood which is uh a midnight movie monograph. It's from PS Publications. You can find PS Publications online to order the book. It's PS Publications, one word, dot co dot uk, as in United Kingdom, because they're in England. Mm -hmm. I also have a new book coming out from them this month that's a fiction work. I collaborated on a book called Studio of Screams, 
Mm. And it's co-written by um, Mark Morris, Tim Levin, Stephen Volk, and Christopher Golden. And I'm the fifth author on the project. It's a collection of four original horror novellas. And the premise was uh, Tim, Mark, Chris, and Stephen invented a British film studio that never existed. And it was my job to write the framing story and the interstitial pieces that tease out the history of this British film studio. And that book is coming out this month, April of 2020. And it's also available from pspublications.co.uk. And finally, Cryptid Cinema, The Boggy Creek Bequest, will be out later this year. And that will be available from Amazon. I'm so stoked for that book. I'm so excited. Yeah. So much. Thanks for having me. As I said, and I'm not blowing sunshine up your ass. You guys ask questions today no one's ever asked. So it's been a really pleasurable conversation. Well, Well, as a couple, we love sunshine up our ass. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, getting sunshine blown up your ass is much better than getting a sharp stick in the eye. (laughs) I don't say. I'm I'm always game to talk to you guys. I hope we get to meet in real life one day when this pandemic has passed us all. And stay in, stay well, stay safe. You too, Steve. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thanks so much. I'm going to go and catch all your podcasts now. So make sure to send me a link to your podcast because I want to catch up on what you guys have been talking about. Will do. We will. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. care. Bye, Lisa. Bye, Brad. Bye. Bye. Nice meeting you. And there you have it. Isn't he just the literal best? He's the coolest guy. So sweet. I I wish I could say I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did, but clearly that's impossible. <laughs> Those compliments that he gave us at the end, I mean, I'm still blushing over them. A more professional podcast would have cut those out. No, but no. we're we're a <laughs> tiny little machine. Yeah. Our our horns got to get tooted. Yeah, we need as many compliments as possible. Toot that horn. Toot that horn. Uh, you know what I loved about that conversation, or one of the many things that I loved about that conversation. What really surprised me at the end was how he is still very much interested uh, and surprised by how other creators take his ideas and his stories and run with it. Like I was so disgusted and you can go back and listen to our Swamp Thing episodes when the new 52 rebooted the plant concept and made Alec Holland Swamp Thing again. One of the things that made that run so uh, resonate so well with us was that idea of leaving the past behind. And, And so when that happened, I was just so mad and even though I like the Scott Snyder, Yannick Paquette storylines, I don't love them the way that I do Saga the Swamp Thing, but here's Stephen Bissett saying like, those are actually pretty great comics. And you know, it's okay that they just don't keep carrying on our thought process. Art has to change, especially in comic books. It, the characters have to evolve. They can't be stagnant. And the, it they does, shouldn't be. They shouldn't be stagnant. And it doesn't change anything that he actually did. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I love that if you follow him on Twitter, he's out there recommending 
comics of today, uh, of the now to his audience. You know, he recently did a nice shout out to Mary Shine's comic book, uh, Get Over It. Which we purchased. Which we purchased. And, you know, I, I listen. When Steve Bissett talks about something that's great, you got to listen. And we did. We also watched that bogeyman. Oh, the Legend of Boggy Creek. Yeah. I yeah. don't know why I keep wanting to call it the bogeyman. Because you're just a big Humphrey Bogart fan. I right? am. And, and, <laughs> and, and so, like, we went from that conversation. We watched that. We watched Harry and the Hendersons. For the first time, I loved it. You loved it. We purchased uh, Bissett's book, Cryptid Cinema, which is all about Sasquatches. Which is way cooler than we anticipated and includes a page that teaches you how to draw uh, the Yeti yeah. like Stephen Bissett. And actually, it, all I learned is that it's impossible. <laughs> I think you need to commit to it, Lisa. You haven't committed to using Cryptid Cinema to help your Sasquatch drawing. I'll do it and then we'll post it on our Instagram. I think you just made a promise and I expect you to follow through on that. It's on the record. Uh, listeners, if you do want to go back and listen to our Saga of the Swamp Thing episode, that is episode 34. I'll drop a link in the show notes. It's one of my all-time favorites. Same. Uh, and you can listen to our Beset interview or my Beset interview uh, over at Film School Rejects or go to the inthemouthofdorkness.com and find it in the ItMod Chatcast feed. I'll help you out. I'll drop that in the show notes as well. Thanks, sweetheart. You're welcome. Next week, we're returning to our Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy series. We've already covered the Batman Adventures era, as well as her first solo series. Now it's time to take a look at the characters during the new 52 era of DC Comics with the Harley Quinn Road Trip Special, written and recommended on Twitter by married couple Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor, and assisted by a bevy of artists. Yeah, a squadron. Uh, we're really digging this relationship so far, but we're also waiting for them to get a little more steamy, but that may never happen to our satisfaction, at least not in the DC universe proper. We may have to jump over to the bombshells or injustice universes to get some hot and heavy stuff between these two. If that's what we gotta do, that's what we gotta do. Let's steam it up! Yeah, but first... I, I hear good things about uh, the New 52 and Rebirth stuff. I'm a fan of uh, this couple as a creative unit. I am excited about this issue. I like that it's like just one solid comic that we're reading. We can dive in and narrow our focus in a way that we haven't done so far. I think that's exciting. Yeah, we like to get nitty and gritty. Nitty gritty. And here's a reminder for you guys, our 50th episode extravaganza, we haven't come up with a good title for it yet, is coming up. <laughs> uh, and it is being edited by super fan and super awesome dude, Max Derrick. So if you have any favorite moments, please email them to us at CBCC podcast with their time codes and maybe a little description about why you love that little part. We'd really appreciate it. Some of you have already come through and we're looking at you, Apple J. Thank you so very much. Yeah, thanks, Apple J. Uh, all right, Lisa, let's hit the road and end this episode. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget, you can email the podcast by writing to cbccpodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. And Brad, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork, and you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast, by subscribing to us on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Podchaser, all those places. And while you're on iTunes, 
why don't you give us the gift of five stars? It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So what do we got to do now, Brad? Uh, you got to keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy.